The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.thewellhastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within the yard of hell. Acts 13, beginning in verse 1, says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So this is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let me uh, pray before we dive in. Father, uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, Father, we ask that you would come and, and uh, give us your spirit over the next few moments as we study your word. God, I ask that you would remove distractions, hindrances, uh, help us to focus, help our, help our hearts to hear from you and what you would want to say to us. Um, yeah, God, we trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. Hey, you want to start us off with a question for you just to kind of think about as we uh, begin to look at the text together. Um, I want you to think about this. How, how often do you think of the Christian life uh, basically being like a war zone, right? How often do you really live in that kind of a reality? Um, maybe the better way to ask the question is to ask, how often do you actually live your life like you are in the middle of a war? Now, as you think about those questions, I'm sure maybe other questions kind of pop up for you, like, what does that even mean? What does it look like to, to live my spiritual life, my life as a believer? What does it look like to actually live like I'm in the middle of a war? I remember uh, seeing a friend recently that I hadn't seen in, a, in probably a couple months, and I asked him how he was doing. He looked kind of jacked up, like he'd been in the gym quite a bit. And, and I told him, I was like, bro, you look pretty jacked. And he, he's like, well, I have been. 
I have been. He goes, life is war. And I was like, oh, yeah. It's a, he goes, you've got to be mentally, physically, spiritually prepared. Because life is war. And I, I thought a little bit about his, just the way that he got after that, the way that he was thinking his way through that. The way that he was thinking is that when he would get up in the morning, he's entering into the war zone. He needed to be prepared mentally, physically, spiritually, so on and so forth. So he wanted to live his life like he was living in the midst of a war. He didn't want to be benched on the sidelines. He didn't want to be hiding out somewhere while everybody else is fighting the fight. He wanted to be engaged and participating in the midst of that war. Now, when I think about believers, and especially new believers too, um, oftentimes uh, when a new believer begins to follow Jesus, they begin to follow Jesus not because they view the, the Christian life as a war, but will oftentimes um, view the Christian life um, more like a consumer. And this is just kind of a natural part of the process of coming to follow Jesus, right? Um, oftentimes what happens is people encounter some kind of what I might call like a soul-crushing experience. Something kind of falls apart in their life maybe. Um, and, and in that moment they become part of the church. And they become part of the church, begin following Jesus simply because they need some kind of a spiritual hospital to stitch them back up again. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually really good. The church should be like a hospital to help people learn how to walk, stand, and run after God, right? So oftentimes you can see the image of sometimes when it looks like for somebody to begin following Jesus, it might look like maybe they kind of had broken legs, right? They kind of kind of came limping in the church. The reality is most of us came to Jesus that same way. The problem is this. Um, as, as soon as a new believer, and you might test this by just looking, looking at your own life, as soon as that new believer is kind of stitched up, walking a little bit better, right, the cast is off, and, and they're, able to, they're able to walk along, then oftentimes we begin to treat the church more like it's a cruise ship, right? Like th this meme that floats all over Facebook for years now has given me all sorts of thinking in this direction. We begin to treat the church more like a cruise ship at that point, and then we begin to criticize or we begin to, to critique or we begin to demand better service while we're on that cruise, right? And we, we treat, you know, pastoral staff or different leaders in the church, like they're just our minions to go do what we want them to do to make our programming better. The reality, though, is that the Bible really never speaks of the church that way. It never really speaks of the church in images that would cause you to think of a cruise ship for consumers to get a vacation from the hardships of life. It doesn't really describe the church that way. When you read the book of Acts, you don't get that image. That's what I'm saying. When you read the book of Acts and you study it, you, you kind of get these images that, that the Christian life is more like a battleship. We're, we're supposed to be designed for war. I don't know that I should need to spend a whole lot of time in, in describing this, but just to make sure I say it, it's like this building is not the church, right? This is a, this is a building where the church meets. The church is people. And so sometimes I think we even get that little piece off. Um, but the reality is the church, we, the people... As believers, we're designed to be a battleship that is designed for war. So you might think of it this way, too. You think about the battleship analogy, and you think about the hospital, right? Now it kind of changes, because the reality is every battleship does have a hospital in it. 
You need a hospital and a battleship. But that hospital is designed to help soldiers get healthy enough to get back into the war. That hospital on that battleship was never designed to get people healthy enough to become better consumers. So, so the moment that we become Christian, I would say that we are engaged in a spiritual war, right? And this text that we're looking at is one of those texts among many throughout the book of Acts that kind of brings it to the forefront, kind of shows us what it looks like to live in that war on the daily as all of the fury of Satan, sin, and death is getting hurled at us. The reality is when Jesus said, hey, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail, the image is that Jesus is going to build a battering ram, a battleship, right? So the reality for the Christian, for us, is that we are supposed to be engaged in a spiritual war on a daily basis where we literally get our heads off the pillows in the morning and we put on our armor on the daily basis, right? We, we put on the mind and the heart and the, the disciplines of Jesus, crucified, risen, returning. We do that on the daily basis so that we can wage war. And the war that we're called to wage is waged with weapons that are not physical, according to the scriptures, not carnal, but they're mighty. They're, they're spiritual weapons. And they're designed for destroying invisible demonic strongholds. So once again, bring you back to the questions. How often do you live your life like you're in a spiritual war zone? Maybe another question, and this might be one of the more, most important to kind of tag onto it, <clears throat> what is it that causes you to live like you're on a cruise ship instead of a battleship? What is it? And here's the thing. It's it kind of easy for us to be like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's my selfishness or it's my, my busyness. And those are probably true, but those are surface. That might be hard for you to hear that those, those answers are surface. Start there and drill down as we work our way through this. Ask the Spirit of God to show you what's below Maybe the selfishness or maybe the time management issues. Like those are some practical things for sure. But what's below, what's the desire underneath of that, right? My thought is this. My thought is that our passage is going to help us think through these questions. And my hope and my prayer is that as we study it, that the Holy Spirit would give us some concrete ways to get our heads and our hearts and our hands back into or maybe more greatly into this war zone. So let's take us back a little bit. Let's get the context set for our study, right? Uh, last week we studied chapter 12. In that chapter, what God did is he revealed his continuous care of the church in Jerusalem, right? That's, that's basically the overriding principle of what was taking place last week in chapter 12. And what we saw in chapter 12 is we saw how God miraculously set Peter free from prison. And then after doing that, he literally takes out King Herod. I mean, it's a fantastic, like, God sets out, sends out a hit squad, an angel of death. Um, Herod was the church's bloodthirsty enemy in that time. He killed James, locks up Peter, intends to kill him. God miraculously sets him free and then zaps the dude and he gets eaten by worms horrible way to die shameful way to die especially when you're this power hungry dude right that is out to get god's church 
And God's like, oh, let me show you what I can do to your so-called worldly power. So it's a fantastic passage that we studied last week. Now before that episode, I'm going to take you back just a little bit further in our thinking. Before that episode, you might remember in chapter 11 how God was basically advancing the gospel out beyond the walls of Jerusalem, right? And he, he advanced the gospel into the city of Antioch, which we talked about being very much like our modern-day Las Vegas. This is the sin city of the Middle East. Worst city you could be in in terms of pagan idolatry. And the size of the church there was so small. And yet in that text, we studied what it looked like to to be a Christian in the midst of a culture like that. And that episode in chapter 11 ended with Barnabas and Saul delivering a financial gift to the church in Jerusalem. That's how that episode ends. And then you jump into what's going on in Jerusalem. James is killed. Peter's tossed in prison. Gets out. God kills Herod. Wow, that's pretty awesome, right? That's the thing that's taking place right before that episode. Paul and Barnabas take this financial gift back to Jerusalem to help them out. And again, in a time and a place, you think about just that one small piece. In a time and a place, in the sin city of the Middle East, where just like modern-day Las Vegas, where greed um, is celebrated and oftentimes justified, the church at that time, in that most sinful of cities, practiced a kind of generosity that was absolutely sacrificial. It's a good lesson for us today to pay attention to, right? So that's, the, that's kind of what's been taking place over the last couple of chapters. Really, if you look at chapter 12, it kind of acts like a, a parenthetical episode. Right? It's got parentheses around it. All of the attention up to this point has been the gospel advancing outside the walls of Jerusalem into some of the filthiest, dirtiest, uh, off-the-road kinds of places that we typically would not go to. Right? Any self-respecting Christian would not go there. And, and in the middle of all that movement and advancement of the gospel, there's this pause to look at Jerusalem and God's care of it. Uh, but then at the very end of chapter 12, uh, the very end of chapter 12 kind of helps us get our attention back out of Jerusalem and back to the advancement of the gospel outside those borders. And the very end of chapter 12 is, is, is uh, important for us to see. Uh, we didn't read it today, but I'm going to read it here. The very end of chapter 12 is verse 25. And verse 25, as well as I think verse 13 of our text today, both of those verses act like bookends to the story, at least in, in the way the, the original language, when we look at the narrative and the way it was written, it, it, they act like bookends. And so the very end of chapter 12, verse 25, says that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had accomplished their service of giving the offering to the church. And then it says, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so from this point forward, what we're going to see um, is we're going to see the church engaged in what I would call all-out war. And, and, it, and it begins here with this short episode of John Mark joining the battle. And then what does he eventually do? We know the end of the story, right? He eventually goes AWOL. He taps out, leaves the battlefield, and there's more to the story. 
But that's what we're studying today. So this episode we're studying kind of begins with the Holy Spirit jumping in, commissioning this small crew for war. If you look at verses 1 through 3 in the text, you get a picture of the church there in Antioch. And really, I think that the picture of the church in Antioch is, is a very ideal picture of a church. It's an ideal picture of the church who understands her identity as a battleship, not a cruise ship, right? Antioch gets it. Without, while many churches in the West today, you might think of churches in the West, many churches in the West um, are very concerned with growth strategies that kind of hoard their wealth and hoard their people, will give a little bit out, but the hoarding and the growth strategy is more what the church in the West has been about for a number of centuries now. The church in Antioch, sin city of the Middle East, this church is radically countercultural. We've already covered that in their generosity, but they're, they're radically countercultural. Uh, all the way to the point that they are open to the Spirit's leading to commission to send out some of their very best people into the battlefield. You think about this church. <coughs> Text tells us that this church was full of some of the very best prophets, some of the very best teachers. Not to mention the th fact that they were super diverse. If you do a deep dive study of the different ethnicities, just in the, the names that are listed there, of those top-notch preachers and top-notch teachers, you'd find very, very diverse. The church in Antioch literally has what we might call a world-class staff team. They're the best of the best. They're the guys that you, the headhunters would go after to get them for the job. That's who's at Antioch. And what they're doing is they're worshiping and they're fasting. Part of worship is resisting and setting aside things that we normally want that aren't necessarily bad for the purpose of giving our full attention to God in worship, right? It's a discipline that helps us to live um, in a stronger way in this sense of, hey, I need to resist some things for a time so I might hear from God. A part of living in a war zone is resistance. Agreed? There's always going to be resistance. And so if you're not living your life like it's a war zone, then you're living your life as though there is no resistance, which means you're not even taking time to intentionally create resistance. You think about that. This is what fasting literally is. It's intentional, self-leading times where you create resistance in your life. So that when the war gets really intense, you're built, just like going to the gym, right? Just like my buddy who says, life is war. Be prepared. Not prepared for war if you're not building resistance. So the church there in Antioch, they're doing that. They're worshiping, they're fasting, and what happens? The Spirit of God comes in and he speaks to them. And he instructs them to set apart. He says, set apart, choose them. Set them apart. Commission is another way of saying this. The Spirit of God comes in and says, set them apart, commission Barnabas and Saul for missionary work in other parts of the world. And in response to the Spirit's leading, church lays their hands on this new missions team. They pray for them. They fast some more. And then they obediently send them out to war. 
when you walk out any of the doors of this church building, you'll see a sign that says something to the effect of that you are now entering the mission field, right? And you could change them to say you're now entering the war. You could say that. It's not like there's not a spiritual war going on here, but because there is. But the mission field, it's, it's imagery of battlefield. It's imagery of war. And the reason that we have those signs by the doors is so that we can all constantly be reminded that the church is meant to be a what? A battleship, not a cruise ship. We're meant to be a battleship that sends and equips, equips and then sends soldiers right out into that war zone of the world that we live in. Every person that you come across, every person that you know, every person that you're in relationship with is someone that you're responsible for sharing the gospel with. So think again about your participation in the church. If you think that your participation in the church is only about having your needs met, although it's a part of it, but if you think that's all of what it is, then you seriously underestimated, or at least misunderstood, God's calling on the church. And the way that we say is that we want to run that mission within a yard of hell, so that we might win souls for Jesus. That's the way we say it here. Every member here, our expectation of members here, is that those members would be like soldiers who have been commissioned for war. Which also then inevitably means that every member must then be sent. Got to be sent out on a weekly basis, which is what we see in the text, right? Second portion of the text, <coughs> you look at verses 4 through 5. After Barnabas and Saul are commissioned for war, they are then sent out to the battlefield. They're not hoarded. They're not kept like in the basement. Like, no, you're, you're our pet preachers. We're going to keep you here. You know? I don't even know why I thought of that. But that's not what they did, right? They sent them out. Hey, wait, we have a ba- that's the issue. We have a basement here. That's where my office is. Yeah, it's like subjective weirdness coming out in me. Sorry. <laughs> they send these guys out. Barnabas and Saul, they have a missionary intern. That's the way I would put it. His name is John Mark, right? These guys, in one sense, they're definitely sent out by the church in Antioch. They are literally missionaries from the church in Antioch. They're not Lone Ranger fanatics. They're not doing whatever they thought God told them to do. They're not out on some street corner with a bullhorn and some tracks. Oh, y'all sinners are going to hell. It's not that kind of a thing, okay? I'm not from Texas, but things sounded right in that place. Here's what really takes place, right? Luke makes it increasingly clear that they are sent out by the Holy Spirit. That's important. In today's day and age uh, where we value individualism more than community, it's very, very popular to talk about my personal relationship with Jesus. Not wrong. Not wrong at all. You should have a personal relationship. with You cannot live in relationship with Jesus on the coattails of someone else's faith. Agreed. A friend of mine who always says that what we often do is we take the, the very good things that God gives us and we live in the shadow of those, meaning we live in an unhealthy representation of them. So yes, You should have a personal relationship with Jesus. God should speak to you as though you are father and son, father and daughter, right? For sure. That doesn't happen outside the context of the local community of the church. 
it must inevitably always happen within the context of the church. In this passage, the community of the church confirms, yes, we all heard the Holy Spirit say that. You guys are supposed to go. But the reality is, yes, the church sends them, but it's really the Holy Spirit sending them. So while these guys go out to the battlefield on behalf of the church, the reality is that they are representatives of the Holy Spirit who sends his witnesses into war, armored with the word of their testimony and the blood of the Lamb. Think of Revelations 12 that says that. That's how we overcome the word of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb. And it becomes increasingly clear, I think, the more you think about this, the more you look at the wording and the language and the trajectory of the narrative and the story, it becomes increasingly clear uh, as you recognize this team of three. They're kind of like a special ops team. You might think of them that way, right? They're being sent out for war. And they land on the island of Cyprus, according to what we read. It's a small island, okay? But when they land on that island, what do they do? At least the way the story is constructed, we're not told that they go and hang out for the first 24 hours, having fun on the beach as a missionary team, so that they can build relationships before they go do the hard work of mission. Like, they're not pulling out their phones and sending selfies of all the great work they're doing over there. They're not... Uh, this isn't a vacation for Christian teenagers to say they did something good. Okay, it's not that. This is the real deal. And when they show up on this island, they begin to immediately share the gospel. All across this 95-mile-wide island, they don't get taxi cabs, not even sure if they had donkeys to ride, probably not. They're walking in their sandals, 95 miles, day by day, stopping along the way to share the gospel with everybody they come into contact with, 95 miles. And it says that they began in each community in the Jewish synagogues first. So they went to kind of the lowest hanging fruit on the island first. Those who would say, yeah, we believe in God. They went to them first. And then they ended up, at, at, in the tail end of this story, in the Gentile courts of rulers and state officials. So it's interesting just to think about that trajectory as they go. Okay? <clears throat> the bottom line here, though, when you, when you do all the thinking, and I think you could even think more, study more, pray more on what this could reveal to you. The bottom line here is that these guys were sent by the Spirit through the local church, to the battlefield so that the gospel could be shared with everyone they came into contact with. That being said, when you think about the trajectory of the story up until this point, here's what I see. I see a church that is radically obedient instead of complacent. They don't show up on Sunday mornings to get entertained. They don't show up on Sunday mornings to nod heads and give some amens and then walk out the same. They walk out different. I see a spirit, a Holy Spirit, who is radically diligent in his war against evil. Really. I see a missionary team that is fully committed to the advancement of the gospel behind enemy lines. They're not there for a vacation. They understand this is a battleship. This is a war we're living in. We just got sent to the battlefield. That's where we belong. That's what our existence is for. Barnabas and Saul... John, Mark, and Toe, 
They were sent to the battlefield to wage war against an enemy as they obediently shared the gospel. It's practical. It's simple. Like, you don't need, like, ten books on sharing your faith in evangelism. Really? Those can be helpful. I got them. If you want them, I'll give them to you. I got a bunch of them. They're great. Sometimes. And sometimes you can have so many tools in your in your toolbox that it's hard to know which one to pull out. Like sometimes you can have too many tools, too. You know? Hence the hundreds of books I have on my shelf. There's too many. No, you can never have too many books. That's got to be a sin to say there's too many, isn't there? Okay, all right. Hey, the point here is this. <laughs> These guys, as they go, man, this, this isn't like your typical run-of-the-mill Sunday gathering. The experience of the church in the West is Sunday gatherings and some programming throughout the week. And it's not bad. It's just those good things, I think, in the Western church have been, we, we have kind of prostituted those things. We've at times lost sight of what the real goal is, right? Now, this is not your typical run-of-the-mill Sunday gathering. There's no air conditioning, no comfy seats, no slick programming. There's no leadership team sitting in the back room with a flow chart trying to figure out how to entertain people. There's none of that. This was a team of Christians who actually rose to the challenge of living life like it's an all-out war. They're engaged in a full frontal assault on an enemy. And their one weapon of mass destruction, you could say, that they're carrying with them is the message of the gospel of Jesus. The reality, if you're looking at this and you're thinking in this way, really what's going on is it's a fight. It's a battle. It should be. Well, what are we fighting for is the question. And the reality is, when you follow the trajectory of the text, it's a fight for eternal life, right? That's what it is. It's a fight for eternal life. Look at verses 6 through 12. After our missions team shares the gospel throughout the entire island, they end up in the company of a Gentile ruler named Sergius Paulus. Sounds very astute in my mind when I read that name. Sergius Paulus. He was an intelligent man, Luke tells us, and he was very interested in hearing the message of the gospel. Seems like he was very open to spiritual conversations. This guy seems to have been searching for something. Something that far surpasses the momentary nature of the world we live in. He's in the company of a Jewish false prophet. He's actually a magician, right? <coughs> that helps us to give us some more indicators. Like This dude really is searching, seeking, wondering what's going on. Now the magician, this dude, a scumbag... <laughs> seems to have felt a little bit threatened um, because of Sergius Paulus' interest in the gospel. So he tries to discourage him from listening to Barnabas and Saul, right? And Saul is also known as Paul. It's interesting to note that at this moment in the, in the story, verses 8 through 9, somewhere in there, interesting to note that, that at this very moment, Saul, from this point forward throughout the rest of the book, is now known as Paul. Paul is his uh, Gentile name, right? Oh, Paul is his Jewish name. Saul is his Jewish name, and Paul is his Gentile name. And I think it correlates to the fact that his ministry is going to primarily focus on the Gentiles as he goes. Paul, in these moments, very frustrated with that magician. So it, the way the text reads, it sounds like he kind of shoots this dude a really intense look. Uh, any of you guys have like the mom or the dad look 
that you can flash at your kiddos, or, or even if not, maybe you're just a friend and you're able to like shoot your friend a look that's like, bro, you keep talking that way, I'm gonna, you're gonna be on the ground. It's that kind of a look, right? It's, it's the look of, it's the look of death, right? We, we get our phrase, if looks could kill. <laughs> that's what I imagine. Paul shoots him a very intense look. Uses some really heavy language, too. Um, the Bible is not necessarily afraid of heavy language. Calls him a son of the devil. Right? Calls him an enemy of all righteousness. I mean, you can imagine somebody looking at you and saying that, like, you are the son of the devil. Jesus did this. You know, he did this when he faced opposition and resistance. Your father is the devil. My father is God. You do everything you see your father doing. I'll do everything I see my father doing. And we know how this is going to end up. My father is bigger than your father. You know. So Paul looks at this dude and he's like, you are the son of the devil. You're an enemy of all righteousness. He, he accuses him of being full of lies and deceit, he says. And in the midst of that, he instructs him to stop trying to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And then... It's like the best part, right? He pronounces blindness. In the midst of all that name-calling and all that stuff, blind. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> I want that gift. <laughs> the problem is I would use it at the wrong times. <laughs> you, that's why I don't have that gift, I guess. I'm not sure if the Lord allows that gift today. I've never heard of anybody doing that. You, know, yeah, you would definitely make Fox News and CNN most likely. Facebook Live. I don't know. It would be blind. <laughs> it pronounces blindness. I mean, you ever wonder, like, what was rolling through Paul's head in that moment? Like, this guy is really a pain in the butt. I'm going to call him a bunch of names, and then, man, either blindness or how about lameness? It could be either one, Lord. What do you think? Oh, blindness. Let's go with that. I don't know. I don't know how. You know, the Holy Spirit makes this happen. That's all there is to it. Makes him go blind. And this is really the consequence that this guy faces for trying to pick a fight with God's people. Ultimately, trying to pick a fight with God? Not a good idea. Doesn't end well. Maybe, maybe Paul could have gone to him first and been like, hey, yo, bro, did you, uh, have you read the newspaper headlines about what happened to Keen Herod recently? Like, we're going to make you go blind instead of getting eaten by worms, but bad day for you if you face off with God. Now, the result of this, right, is, is what's important. The result of this little skirmish in this war for eternal life is that that, little, that Gentile ruler, this Sergius Paulus, says in verse 12 that he believed in Jesus when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Uh, what was going on in this time is that as God advanced the gospel forward in this war, um, the gospel and its effects uh, were being accompanied by signs and wonders. And this is one of those signs and wonders. We don't see that today. And there's lots of speculation by theologians as to why. There's some passages that some people would use to try to show that these things are not for today. And so I'm not even trying to get into the middle of that too much. Um, yeah, I can be a little wishy-washy on this one for sure. And, you know, it's okay. I'll probably still go to heaven. Um, I don't think that the gift of causing people to go blind is around today. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Um, here's what I think. I think in America, we, we're a bit spoiled, and we're a bit complacent as a nation, as a Christian nation. 
right? So that could be part of it. The bottom line here, though, in, in all of this is that Barnabas and Paul, they enter the battlefield, they engage in the fight for eternal life. So, so think about this for a minute. Can you imagine, imagine, put yourself in Barnabas and Paul's shoes, okay? In their shoes, you're there, you've been sent out, and in, in the midst of the skirmish, this whole thing happens, right? This magician is there, he's like following you around, doing whatever he does, trying to get your attention, trying to distract everybody from hearing the message that God's given you to preach, and so in the midst of that, you're kind of engaged in it. In the midst of all that, you're like, you know what? Hey, man, this is too risky. Right? You just, maybe you're Paul. Okay? And you, little Barnabas, you're like, hey, bro, this is, let's just go get a cup of coffee. And you and I can talk about you. We can fellowship. God wants us to fellowship too. So let's, let's go fellowship. Let's just build a big old Christian bubble and live inside of that. And God will take care of the magician and this Sergius Paulus guy. Maybe he'll come to the coffee shop. We'll talk to him there. Right? I mean, I, you understand what I'm saying, right? There's all sorts of ways that even in our Christianese, we find ways to circumvent engaging the mission that God has given us and not to be on the battlefield. <coughs> Maybe. Like, can you imagine a different kind of outcome? Okay. Imagine what the outcome of the story would be like if Barnabas and Paul, maybe they just decide to invite this uh, Sergius Paul. It's like, we're going to send him a text message real quick. Don't have to really talk to him because, like, that's really hard, you know, especially if I'm more of an introvert. Um, it's kind of hard to talk to somebody. So maybe I'll just send him a text, and I'll send him a text. I'll let him know what time our church is gathering back in Antioch. And I'll get him to go. Maybe, maybe he'll hear our preacher. Our preacher is good with his words. And then the magician probably won't come. I mean, our, our, our security guard will throw him out anyway. So we'll just invite him. It's not bad to invite people to church. It's not bad to go fellowship over coffee. But do you see how we can really easily, in that Christian bubble, not even be on the battlefield at all? <clears throat> One of my missionary heroes, most of you know this, tattooed on my arm. It's all over our church, right? C.T. Studd, <clears throat> missionary of China and India. He's <coughs> famous for saying that some people want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. Hey, chapel bells are pretty. Nothing wrong with that. He's not saying that's wrong. He's just saying some people want to be really comfortable. Uh, but I want to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. Dude led some fantastic ministry. He was a great pastor, great shepherd, and a great evangelist at the same time. <coughs> he's also famous for saying something to the effect of that he had no desire. I mean, he kind of said he's, he's very brash, which is probably why I like him a little bit. He said that he had no desire to coddle selfish, lazy sheep in sheep pens because he wanted to win souls for Jesus in the dirtiest of places. I, I listen to the, some of the things that he says, and it kind of gets me on fire. You know, I'm like, man, I want us all to be like that. I think Barnabas and Paul would probably be in very good company with C.T. Studd, right? Being commissioned for war, sent out to the battlefield, fighting for eternal life for everyone that they meet. That's the text, right? For the most part. It's simple, it's sweet. Let me ask you again. How often do you live your life like you're in a spiritual war zone? And what is it that causes you to live like you're on a cruise ship instead of a battleship? Right? Kind of as we as we conclude all of this, my hope is that the Spirit has given you enough to think about in answer to those questions. 
Because here's the thing, oftentimes we live like we're on a cruise ship. And we talked earlier at the front end of the things that are on the surface versus the things that are underneath. When you think about desires that are underneath the surface things, oftentimes we live like we're on a cruise ship because we desire things like safety or we desire comfort or we desire security, right? Security, safety, comfort. Uh, Maybe our desire for friendship is so high that we just can't fathom having a relationship separated somehow because we pressed into sharing the gospel. So, so in that case, we're just living in light of fear, right? We're being controlled by that kind of a desire, and we're afraid maybe that we won't say the right things, or maybe we're afraid that we might lose those friendships if we continue to see life like a war um, for the salvation of the lost. Look at Barnabas and Saul. They were definitely living like they're on a battleship, correct? They're being controlled by that understanding. They're not being controlled by desires for safety or comfort or security. They trusted that Jesus was the best friend that they could ever have. They, they observed the gospel. They knew the gospel, that they were saturated in that gospel message. And I think they trusted that God would give them the words to speak when they needed them. Right? That's, that's Barnabas and Paul. But we still have verse 13 to go, don't we? I told you it was like a bookend. John Mark, um, on the other hand, is kind of like silently behind the scenes. Shows up with them in the beginning, and what happens at the very end? John Mark seems to have had a massive misunderstanding about what it means to be a Christian who runs into the battlefield to seek and to save the lost just as his Savior had done. John Mark would still claim to be Christian, would still proclaim the gospel to know that he knew Jesus, right? And yet, he bailed. And Luke confirms it, right? He says in verse 13, Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos, came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, it's not as though John Mark is not a believer. We don't want us to get mixed up in that. It's not that. Paul later, though, in Acts 15, he refuses to let John Mark join them on the battlefield again. He says, no, that soldier ain't going with us. Don't trust him on my right. Don't trust him on my left. Ain't going to watch his back. He didn't watch mine. I don't think he's going to watch mine anyways. That's, that's the setting later in chapter 15 for Paul. Although another thing to be um, aware of <clears throat> is that later in Paul's life, right before he's beheaded, right, he does ask for John Mark. He asks for him to come. Because at that point, it seems that John Mark has then proven himself to be, what Paul says, very useful to me for ministry. That's 2 Timothy 4. So while John Mark's salvation is not in question, I don't think, in any of this, It is very clear that John Mark abandoned the mission for a season. Maybe he went and took a vacation for a long time. I don't know. (coughs) Scholars argue about what could have been going on. There was sickness there. He was afraid of the sickness. I think, honestly, (coughs) I think John Mark saw this thing with this magician. I think it scared the ever-living heck out of him. He's like, yo, bro, I'm going to go back to the church in Jerusalem. I'm going to, like, 
I don't know. I'm going to mow the yard. <laughs> hey, we need people to mow the yards, by the way, so don't stop doing that. That's, that's the sense that I get, right? And the reality is that if John Mark had been in the mission for a season, we're all guilty of that, aren't we? Aren't we all guilty of that at times? At some point or another? So again, I don't know what reasons you may have for being complacent or absent in, a, in this war for salvation of lost souls. Sometimes I find that we get complacent, we become absent in this calling to fight for the salvation of the lost because we are afraid, we are selfish, we are tired of the suffering that that may bring along with it. We, 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 we wind up lying to ourselves, thinking it's somebody else's job. We don't, we don't like the uncomfortable feeling of sharing our faith with others. We don't know what we're going to say. Here's the thing, whatever the excuse is, it's an excuse. And excuses are sin. It's a sin to disobey God's command, to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, to make disciples, to baptize them, to continue teaching them to obey God, according to Matthew 28 and Acts 1.8. To not follow Jesus, our proverbial captain, to the very edges of hell and back for the sake of the lost, that is a sin that we should constantly repent of. And whenever we talk about repentance and sin, this is oftentimes when we start to shut down and tune out. And that should be an indicator of what's going on inside of us if you're in that place today. The message of the text is clear. You want to blow it all down? Here's the message of the text. <coughs> this is war. In this war, we should be like Barnabas and Paul. Don't be like John Mark. Be like these guys. Don't be like that guy. It's the message of the text. <coughs> I think it's also clear, too, that as you read the rest of the story, it's never too late to repent from disobedience. Never too late to get back into the war. Never too late to fight on the front lines for eternal life. <coughs> all you got to do is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. I say this all the time. Jesus left his comfortable place in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. He came to a sin-soaked war zone that we live in called earth to spread the message of the gospel and then to live out the message of the gospel as he dies on the cross in our place as he then leaves the tomb empty on the third day and then leaves us with the promise of heaven. But not only that, he also leaves us with his spirit, right? It's the spirit who would empower us to endure, who would empower us to become his witnesses in the midst of an all-out war between the forces of hell and the forces of heaven. So my challenge to us as we wrap it up is this. We confess and repent Maybe the ways that you have turned the church into your own personal cruise ship. Ask God to forgive you of that kind of sin. Ask Him to fill you with His Spirit so that you can get back on a battleship. Ask Him to guide you into the war for eternal life. Final thing I would say is this. <coughs> Ask the Spirit of God to reveal the name of at least one person, if not more, at least one person that you need to be sharing the gospel with. Ask him to give you the courage. Ask him to give you the winsomeness, right? Not to just go into that and like see that person as your opponent that you need to beat in this war. Like, that kind of combative evangelism is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Ask him to give you the winsomeness to be in that relationship with somebody 
to win them over for the gospel, to give an answer for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and respect. Ask him to give you strength to be faithful in that relationship so that you might, over the course of time, see someone like Sergius Paulus come to faith because of what he heard and what he saw confirmed in your life as you preached and shared to them. I think if we would all do this, if we would all follow through on these kinds of things, I think we would continue to become the kind of church that does see life as a war and that we would be engaged in that war for the sake of seeing lost souls come to find eternal life. That's what I think. You guys agree? Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for our time in your word. Pray, Lord God, that you would come now and habit the praises of your people. <laughs> Continue to turn our attention to the foot of that bloody cross, the doorway of that empty tomb. <coughs> Continue to restore within us the joy of the hope of heaven. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.